outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and uh, I've got a great guest uh, today, Jessica Lotz, who is the uh, executive director of Innovate Memphis, one of my favorite uh, organizations. Jessica, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me today. Well, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about Jessica first. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your background and how uh, you you came to this uh, this great job as executive director for Innovate Memphis. Sure thing. Well, I know uh, being a native of the area, everybody wants to know what high school you graduated from. So I'm a Bartlett High graduate and, and grew up there for my whole childhood. Um, I went to Rhodes College for undergraduate and then Duke University for a public policy degree uh, for my graduate program. And, you know, with public policy, uh, I really kind of had the idea in my mind that I would be like in the West Wing and grabbing the blue folders and walking fast and having great quips and doing a lot of federal work. Uh, so a lot of what my classmates ended up doing and are still in D.C. today. Uh, but when I was uh, interning in Washington, D.C. at the Government Accountability Office, uh, I just really realized how much I missed Memphis and how I really liked local policy and urban issues uh, to tackle in a kind of smaller environment, um, just because you there's still a lot of impact you can have at the federal level, but you're a much smaller little cog in the machine. And um, I just really care a lot about the local community. So at that point, I decided to just come back and see what happened. Um, I ended up working for Memphis City Schools, then Shelby County Schools, then Memphis Shelby County Schools for almost 12 years. And I uh, spent about half of that time uh, first doing project and grant management on a big Gates Foundation grant that we had on teacher effectiveness and talent management. Uh, and then the second half, I was the director of our research and performance management team with the district. Uh, so I came to Innovate Memphis this past August and I just was really excited about you know, the opportunity to be in a very dynamic, innovative, move fast kind of environment and uh, be able to look at more urban issues and, and things than um, just education alone, not to say that's not a really important priority, but um, I'm just excited to be able to learn and do a lot more and a lot more uh, sectors that I think can make our community a, a better and healthier place. Sure. Yeah, and we're so glad you came back from D.C. The federal government working in D.C. is great, but uh, I think local government is really where it's at in terms of having uh, immediate effect on, on people because you're so much closer to the people than you are in, in DC. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, Memphis, I, I'm very much in the camp that we are a, a big town and not a small city where um, you're really, you know, you can get a lot done by making good relationships with different community members and leaders. And um, there's always an easy place to find where you can have an impact if you're willing to, to try and try again, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about Innovate Memphis. Um, for those of uh, folks uh, listening or watching who who aren't familiar, um, what's your mission and uh, a little bit of the history of, of of the organization? Sure. Well, I think the history is a good place to start. Uh, we started back in 2011 as the Mayor's Innovation Delivery Team under Mayor Wharton. 
And uh, Memphis was one of the first five cities in the country to have a Bloomberg Philanthropies founded innovation function. The whole idea with it is that in local government, really government, public sector in, in general, a lot of times there's not a lot of room to test new things out. Um, you know, a lot of times you're working on a very thin margin, both budget-wise, people, time-wise. And so um, you know, a lot of civic departments, even if they see a need to do something different or there's a type of issue that they just don't have a lot of time to tackle because they're, they're really obligated to deliver the services they already have today as they are, the whole idea is let's have a research and development function and have a team that's just dedicated to those really sticky issues that um, you know, we need to test out a lot of new things. Not all of those things might work. Um, we need the opportunity to have a team that can fail, um, but at least know that something was worth trying, but maybe didn't get the results we wanted. But at the same time, when we do try new pilots and they do work, uh, what we work really hard to do even today is to make sure they're sustained. Uh, so if we see evidence of success, we try to take a lot of that upfront design development, getting started implementing uh, tool development types of processes and package them, train people up, make it easy to transition the new way of doing business. And so we've done that over the course uh, since that time in 2011 and through two mayoral administrations now on a lot of different projects that can include improving EMS and 911 dispatch. We've done work with animal shelter. We've done work with um, the park services, um, economic vitality, uh, youth gang violence reduction. Uh, so really just a broad swath of areas depending on uh, all the priorities that uh, a given mayor and their administrative team might have at that time. Can you give uh, us an example of something that you felt like Innovate Memphis did really, really well? Yeah, I'd say one of my favorites by far, and, and all this precedes me since I've only really been in uh, office here since August, but I really think the EMS work that we, we partnered with the fire department on, so they were, of course, a central uh, player in it as well. But you know, one of the things when Mayor Strickland came on board that he was concerned about initially was there's a really, we're having a hard time with 911 turnaround call volume, um, volume itself, and also just it might take two, three minutes sometimes to be able to answer somebody. And so if you're having a true emergency, every second counts. Um, but a lot of what we were hearing from dispatchers was that some people were calling and they, they still probably have a need, but it's not a call 911, get an ambulance, go to the ER type of need. And so when that was happening, you, know, you really were um, taxing a lot of the emergency response resources for one. And then that's really expensive for both the city and for the patient. When you think about what an ambulance ride costs and go into the ER versus other ways to do care. So we were brought in at that point to help analyze what were the, some of the themes of those calls where it wasn't an emergency, but somebody might know, still need help. Because uh, the idea wasn't just to be able to figure that out and hang up. It was how do we get them the care they need, but also make sure these types of emergency services are just for emergencies. Um, so with that, we were finding things like, um, you know, sometimes you would have somebody that that was their only way that they could figure to get transportation somewhere. I didn't have a car, so if I can get an ambulance, at least I can get somebody to help me with maybe an urgent care type of issue, but not a true uh, emergency. Uh, and then other times we would find things, you know, somebody sometimes is calling four or five times a week, and they actually might have a behavioral health need and not um, an emergency response type of need. So once we analyzed those types of things, we worked with EMS to figure out what are other ways we could deliver services to meet these needs in the community. 
Uh, so one example was uh, the fire department creating a behavioral health team that could help with those types of callers. Um, also having uh, emergent or medical services like doctors and nurses get dispatched to people's homes uh, for those less urgent but still still needed care items. And then the other thing that we're actually still working on today is a result is a program called 911 Ride Choice. And with that, it's uh, letting people call into a centralized dispatch center that's not emergency, but just for regular standard medical appointments. And that's really meant for senior citizens and people with disabilities. Um, but they can get rides on demand for free during the normal you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday uh, work week uh, in order to get that type of care. And it's really helping them get to the preventative health that they need so that something doesn't become an emergency down the line. Um, we've actually just expanded that too to be rides to resources now. So I'm excited about that because 901 Ride Choice has been about traditional medical appointments, but this now expands for the rest of this calendar year uh, to include all kinds of social determinants of health. So you can get behavioral care, you can get access to groceries, um, pharmacy, recreational needs so that your you know, holistic health is being taken care of and transportation is not a barrier to that. Sure, yeah. And that program, as you say, I mean, it has ripple effects, right? Because it, it reduces the wait time and it significantly reduces the wait time on 911 calls. Um, alleviates pressure on the emergency rooms for the hospitals. Mm -hmm. It reduces the cost to the to the public. Reduces the amount of time that uh, ambulance uh, ambulance and drivers are on the sidelines because they have to stay at the at the hospital waiting for their patient to be to be seen. You know, it just has a ripple effect all all across the uh, the spectrum when you when when you can find that one thing that has that can move the needle in so many different ways. Let me ask you this, and this is a little bit out of left field, but as you were talking, you were talking about the, the ride, um, the ridership on demand and so forth, which always brings me to the, to the issue of mobility in our community. Mm -hmm. You guys working on any mobility issues right now? Yeah, transit's really been a big part of our work for a while, and I know you just spoke with uh, Jackson McNeil from our team not too long ago, our transportation and mobility director, so that's mm -hmm. just a quick plug, which we're about to actually plug on our socials to make sure people check out um, his work, but we really have, have tried to approach transit mobility from a lot of different angles, so mobility management would be just what I was talking about with 901, uh, ride choices, on-demand services, finding alternatives to get people where they need to go, where they may not have their own car. Um, but we've also done some bigger picture strategic planning work uh, to help the city with uh, transit before. And so Transit Vision 3.0 is a plan that we really took the lead on, on producing that corresponds with the city's Memphis 3.0 plan. So the Memphis 3.0 plan is all about the physical environment investments and having investments in every neighborhood and anchor sites within every neighborhood that help with um, you know, improving physical infrastructure where there needed to be maintenance, but also enhancements. And then uh, Transit Vision is corresponding with that to say, what would it take to have a you know, really well-performing, reliable, high-frequency transit system in the Memphis area beyond what we've been able to invest in before? And so with that, you will see in that original plan, a lot of recommendations around um, really rethinking how we do bus routing for one thing. So with it, it's, you know, what if we really focus more on having some much more high frequency corridors like Poplar, for example, running east to west, where you can, you know, a bus is coming every 15, 20 minutes. 
and then have a couple of those running north and south too. And then you have much less frequent, but you know, by diverting resources to those central arteries, we can be more reliable, but have other bus routes that kind of spread out to the lower density parts of town and more residential parts of town. Um, recently, MATA did update that. And so what's, what's really cool, I think, about where they're going now is they want to still maintain uh, being able to invest in those high frequency routes running through the, the main corridors of the city, but do a lot more with an on-demand model. Um, so not just with 901 Ride Choice, where we're prioritizing medical needs and a smaller population of seniors and people with disabilities, but actually having on-demand for everybody that's affordable and um, spread to other parts of the community that haven't typically had that type of service. Uh, the biggest example today that's already active is the Groove Shuttle, um, but that's limited to downtown, the edge, the medical district. But um, a lot of people don't know, this is one of the best kept secrets in town, I think, that each ride there, it's on demand, it's $1.25 per ride. Um, so a lot cheaper than an Uber and a really cool way to get around town. Um, so strategic planning we have done there. And then the other big transit mobility program that we've had a, a focus on is around just, you know, customer, resident, outreach, and education. Uh, so we have a commute options program. And that's really just uh, sharing with our community incentives, information about how to access all of these other modes of transportation beyond just me on my own in a single occupancy vehicle getting to and from work or school. Well, I, I think that there's no more important issue in our community than mobility. Um, I just think it, it the lack of access to mobility um, for opportunity youth, for uh, the elderly, for, as you say, hand, uh, disabled folks, uh, you know, everybody who, who can't uh, have access to an, uh, an automobile of their own, um, it really limits our 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 whole uh, community. Yeah. Um, getting to school, getting to education, you know, uh, vocational, uh, you know, TCATs, all those things, and then getting to a job um, uh, in other places. I, I just think if uh, if I was a politician and I'm a recovering politician, mm -hmm. I'm not running for anything. Um, but I and I've told anyone who will listen. If you will focus on mobility and, and change that for the better, um, that's the biggest impact you could have on, on uh, Shelby County in this region. Yeah, I agree. It just opens the doors for so many. And, and the biggest challenge that we have, I think community-wise, is that we've been so reliant on just uh, cars for so long that it makes it really hard for people to want to make that transition, even though it has a net positive impact on all of us. We also got to make sure that we have the funding and the resources for transit so that it's a, a reliable alternative. Um, because if I don't you know, feel as a community member that um, the you know, bus or the other modes of transportation are coming frequently enough or that I can rely on them to be there every day at the same time and, and get me to where I need to go within a reasonable amount of time like I could with a car, um, that'll always be a challenge. So uh, one other thing on the horizon we're working on is updating um, a white paper we did in advance of the original Transit Vision 3.0 plan, but it's really meant to say now that we know what MATA's uh, latest version of that plan is, uh, how do we fund it? What are the different avenues that we could take as a community? Because it really will take more than any one entity or office. You know, it will take um, county commission, city council, you know, both mayoral administrations, and then very importantly, community advocates to say, we think this is worth doing. And when we invest 
it's not just about getting point A to point B, but making sure that economic development and job access and education are more accessible throughout the whole community so that we can all rise to the occasion. Yeah, and it's, it's, it has to be an equitable uh, solution all across the spectrum. In other words, it needs to be something that, you know, Fred Smith would want to use just like anyone else would want to use because it was a good system. And, you know, that brings, if we're all riding the same transportation, that brings us together in a way that, as you, that riding in our own cars just doesn't. So um, it's, a, it's a tough issue because there, you know, there, there's class distinctions and racial distinctions associated with public transportation. And it's hard to unwind that when you talk to people um, so that they see that say a bus or see public transportation as is ours, not just theirs or mine or whatever. And uh, uh, so it, it's it's not something that you can solve on one meeting of the city council. So I'm glad you guys are are looking at it and studying it uh, every day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're just happy to to hopefully give. Uh, everybody here a framework to work from because uh, I think you know, a lot of people are willing to try something new if they see a, a clear roadmap for it. Um, and because this is such a cross-cutting issue, yeah, I think that's where NMA Memphis also ends up being kind of a benefit to the community is that because we're always trying to incubate something and usually give it back to um, a parent, you know, our, our babies after they're um, fully developed and we see that a program is successful, we're almost always looking at, well, who would be adopting this in you know, a sustainable way? And so with that in mind, um, you know, we're not really a territorial or competitive type of organization because we're always trying to develop something that's going to help somebody else down the line. So we've also really enjoyed, I think, over the last few years being this intermediary in a lot of different ways. And transit's one of those areas where, you know, we're obviously not the, the main provider of transit or funder of transit, but we can uh, put our best thinking and good research and good community input and feedback through our user-based uh, design type of approach in order for all of those different decision makers to get that same information at the same time. Well, what's the next big uh, effort for Innovate Memphis? What's on the horizon? Well, probably the biggest one that I'm excited about launching uh, this year that hasn't uh, started in earnest yet, but actually uh, got some really great developments with it is uh, we're wanting to build a civic data hub uh, we're calling it Data Mid-South, and uh, you know people might already be familiar with a few really great resources that are out there. So the city mayor um, with Innovate Health launched the Office of Performance Management several years ago, but now that team is you know very much uh, self-sustaining, doing great work, and they have a city data hub. Uh, and then we've also got a property hub that's already out there. The idea behind these tools is bring all of these different types of data across different service sectors or just indicators of overall community well-being into one place uh, so that everybody can see all the same information at the same time, but it's across sectors because you know, the city can only really be limited to what the city collects. Today, our property hub is very focused on neighborhood condition and housing and property data. Um, but we want to go bigger than that. So we want to keep keep those things up, but include uh, other indicators of economic development, community development, public health, justice and safety, arts and culture is an area I'm really excited about. We haven't historically uh, kind of centralized uh, good information there. And um, I feel like I'm missing, oh, youth and education would be the other. So we're also pulling in school district data as an example. Uh, so that's something that we will make into a publicly accessible website. 
and we're thinking of both kind of the, you know, give me the headline. I don't have a lot of data background, but just a few key statistics or visuals to help me understand how things are going in those different areas I mentioned, but all the way down to also having a file repository for the analysts, the researchers, and people that want to be able to do research for the public good in the area. Um, we want all this to be kind of that one-stop shop for all those things. Uh, so just have a, a new employee that is leading the charge with that who started yesterday um, at the time we're recording this. And um, we are you know, working on bringing in some more resources and we'll, uh, our goal is to have about this time next year, you know, some headline uh, types of charts and, and data assets available for everybody, uh, readily available to the public and then build out from there. Well, that's uh, the name of the game in 2023, isn't it, is data. Yeah. Uh, any, any, uh, a business or organization that's not tracking their data and understanding uh, trends is uh, behind the eight ball. And I would imagine that's the same for communities. Absolutely. And you know, what we're really focused on with this type of asset is, yeah, there's there's some nonprofits here and, and other organizations that are really good at it. Um, and they've also got those prior relationships with data providers to where they can get a lot of what they need pretty regularly, but it's just not guaranteed. Um, you know, We're still a very relationship-based uh, town in a lot of ways. So what we want to do is break down that barrier for people that haven't historically had that type of access to this information. And that's really to help um, you know, both nonprofits of all sizes and capabilities be able to um, explore problems, address root causes, advocate for resources, for them to deliver services aligned to all the, the data areas that we see a need for. But it's also for, you know, I call just the, the John Q public, you know, everyday citizen that doesn't always have a seat at the table um, for these types of discussions or decisions to be able to advocate for themselves. So I think over time, if you know, I'm able to, to look into it as that John Q and say, hey, you know, I'm seeing that uh, we're not getting nearly the same amount of investment on um, resources to be a first time homeowner. And I'm noticing that the next zip code over has gotten a lot more resources to do that. How do I you know, figure out how to get access to those same things? So we want to be able to make those types of things visible and, and easy to understand for everybody too. All right, hypothetical question. You're, you're like me, you're not running for anything. That's but correct. Let's, <laughs> let's, say, let's say that for one day, you're running to be mayor of Memphis and you're going to appear in a debate with all the other candidates. Mm -hmm. What message would you bring to that debate that, maybe the other candidates aren't going to talk about what you think would be important? Oh, that's a great question. And, and I'll be honest, I, uh, I have no interest in running for political office only because I, I like doing this type of work uh, where, you know, somebody can set that, that big vision. And I love trying to figure out, well, how do we make it a reality? And, and what are those, the set of strategies and tactics that you use? I mean, I think that, um, Something that really appeals to me about the type of work we do is being sort of a pragmatist. I mean, you still have the big dreams, right? Because you can't be innovative without really thinking um, outside of the box. But I really like tethering that to what will it really look like day to day in reality? And I, I consider myself you know, somebody that, that cares about execution almost more than, than any other part of it. Because um, otherwise, it just stays an idea on paper. Um, so if I was only advocating for my my personal value to, to the city of Memphis, I would say, I think those things are really important and having leaders on your team that that believe in that too and know how to get it done is really important. Um, yeah, I guess the, the other thing that I, I, I consider myself quite an optimist. I know we have our ups and downs as a city for sure with um, cha different challenges we have. And 
how we can get better. Um, yeah, I, I think focusing on poverty and all the, the barriers that need to be broken down for people to, to get out of poverty is just the single one issue that um, that really ties to everything else, you know, that, that makes us a better city or, or worse off. And so um, I think if I was putting a platform together, um, anything like that, like we talked about with transportation, that that's a key of making sure that people can have access to basic resources and jobs and education. Um, I think, you know, acknowledging how hard it can be to get to some of those basic resources if your community is disinvested and making that really equitable and, and finding good incentives to build a healthy ecosystem in every part of the, the city is really important and saying, you know, the, the private sector might not always be able or willing to do that. And uh, we think it's worth investing publicly where, where that market doesn't exist um, to make sure that all those holistic things um, that are covered in that in our data um, infrastructure as well would be important. All right. Well, Jessica, I, I appreciate uh, you being on the show and sharing uh, all the good news about uh, Innovate Memphis. And I can I can tell our listeners that um, the work they do is is unsung. It's behind the scenes, kind of by design. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it is uh, truly uh, uh, nonpartisan, nonpolitical. Just looking for what's best for the community. Keep up the good work because uh, they 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 have improved our community uh, in more ways than many people know. Jessica, thank you for your work. Oh, thank you for your time. It's great to be here today. All right. Well, thank you all for watching and listening. If you if you enjoyed it, please uh, please give us a five star review or uh, give us a review. Share us uh, on social media or email this to someone who uh, who you think would uh, enjoy it. Jessica is going to go back and make uh, Memphis a better place. I'm going to go get some justice. So thank you all very much.